and a big welcome to Series 4 of the Wanderlust Off The Page podcast. Series 4 already, that time has flown by. It really has, hasn't it? In the previous three series, we've taken you all over the world with episodes on Easter Island, Austria, Morocco, Vietnam, South Georgia, Australia, so many more places. But Rosie, what can we expect from Series 4? So for Series 4, we will continue to take you behind the scenes of your favourite travel articles, um, bringing you closer to destinations from all over the world. So we've got Louisiana lined up, Croatia, Diria and Tobago, to name a few of those places that we'll be covering. On today's show, we'll be transporting you to the mysterious country of Azerbaijan, a place that is not really on the tourist radar, but is definitely worth you seeking out. Yes, Azerbaijan is where the east meets west. Once a key stop on the Silk Road, the country has many cultural secrets, such as its historic old town, fine architecture and traditional crafts. And we hear the wine is pretty good too. And a visit to Azerbaijan would definitely not be complete without heading into the mountains. The Caucasus Mountains here are ripe with adventure, including hiking trails, horse riding routes and opportunities to paraglide. Joining us on the show today and talking to Aaron Miller is travel writer Mark Elliott, who's been visiting and writing about the country since 1995. During Mark's most recent visit, he was lucky enough to visit so many corners of the country, including Baku and Absheron and the High Caucasus, the Sheki route, central Azerbaijan and the lesser Caucasus, to name just a few. It sounds like he had a fascinating journey and I can't wait to hear all about it. So over to you, Mark and Aaron. Mark, so great to have you on the show. I've been really excited about this one because Azerbaijan is a country that I actually know nothing about, shamefully, and I have seen photos and it looks... You're not out. the only one. <laughs> yeah, no, I, but that's what Wanderlust is all about, isn't it? It's it's all about that road less travelled. So this is like the perfect conversation to have. And I love hearing about places I haven't been to. But what's your history with it? How did you How did you get involved with Azerbaijan? Well, it started, uh, I, I lived in Japan for three years and I took the scenic route home just in the early 90s. And uh, it was it was one of those strange things that the only thing we had was a, an old Soviet map of the USSR. By the time we got there, all the countries had changed names, the cities had changed names. And I thought, well, this is just extraordinary. It was completely mad. Now, you've got to remember there was no internet. So just trying to find your way around just working out where to get visas, any of that kind of thing was very, very difficult. And initially I had the idea, well, I ought to, to write about this. And the sort of idea was to write a sort of about the Silk Road. But of course, by the time I got home, other people were doing that, but no one had done anything about the Caucasus. So I went back and uh, went to the, the Azerbaijan and Georgia and and before you knew it, I discovered there was someone else writing a book on Georgia. So then I came up with an idea of, of writing a book of how to cross Asia with no money. And that's the one that got published. Um, it was known as Asia Overland, became a bit of a cult thing because it was entirely mad. So I went to Stanford's in London. It's a famous bookshop specializing in travel books. And um, it turns out they told me, you know, you're selling most of your copies to BP businessmen who are going to Azerbaijan. I don't think they could actually pronounce it at the time. But they discovered that those 20 pages on Azerbaijan were the only bit of English coverage of that country uh, in the mid 90s. 
Well, I thought, well, goodness sake, writing a book about one country would be so much easier than doing it about the whole of a continent. And um, and off I set to, to do it. And you've got to remember, this is pre-internet. I'm writing a book about a country which really the, the last guidebook, apart from a couple, there was a book written about the capital Baku, and there had been a USSR guide written by um, Lonely Planet just at the point the USSR collapsed. But that had a few pages about Azerbaijan. Other than that, the, the last guidebook had been written in during World War One. So you can imagine as a writer the thrill. I mean, to, to you, but I, but also the lack of uh, the lack of data to go on. So the, the very act of writing it was was truly exciting. And and quite honestly, you had to be quite creative. So um, the transport system had rather collapsed um, coming out of essentially a civil war, the collapse of the USSR. So for people to just to go from village to town and back again was very difficult. So I came up with a, a, an a approach to research, which was great fun. I took a rental car and basically drove up each road. And generally, when you went off the main road, each vill- there were always hitchhikers waiting to get to their village. And sometimes they wait all day. So in return for them introducing me to the old men of the village from whom I would then record the local stories, I would then take them to the village. And then obviously then you get invited in and it became an enormously delightful way of working. How wonderful, especially in this day and age when all the information, all the questions we could possibly ask are immediately answered for us on the first page of Google. How incredible is that to to actually go in and really truly immerse and embed yourself in a country, particularly like from a cultural cultural perspective, such a melting pot of, of influences. How did all those kind of influences come and kind of weave together into that unique culture? What were some of your favorite cultural experiences? For people who don't know it, okay, where is Azerbaijan? It's on the Caspian Sea, sandwiched between Russia and Iran, and is incredibly varied. You, you've got mountains, you've got deserts, you've got the, the Caspian Sea, you've got the most extraordinary places where the land spontaneously catches fire. But it's actually quite a multicultural place. Um, you wouldn't necessarily recognize it, but there are lots of small languages. in. There are villages with their own languages, now, if you are a typical tourist, you won't necessarily hear the difference, but they're actually linguistically very different. It's very, very difficult to, to pinpoint any one thing, but a good example of this sort of something that's totally Azerbaijani, although Iran has it too, is the celebration of Nowruz. Now, if you go to Iran, which I've done many times, Iran I also recommend people to go to, one of the Many, many features of Nowruz, which the Iranians will call Persian New Year, the Azerbaijanis will just say it's a spring festival. The Tuesdays before that, especially one of them, are named for the different elements. This dates back to the Zoroastrian period where, you know, there was reverence to to earth, wind, water and uh, fire. And the, the, the Tuesday relative to fire, on one of the Tuesdays before Nowruz, the people will make bonfires and jump across the fire as a form of purification. And this is very much frowned upon by the Muslim authorities in Iran, whereas in Azerbaijan, it's played up. And this is, this is a, a great thing of national pride. So the Nowruz is, is 
very much the national holiday. You know, if you go to Azerbaijan during that period, it's a, a fantastic time to be there, although you'll have a lot will be closed because people are partying and um, it's a lovely time to be there. It's the spring equinox, so it's the days before and after um, March the 21st. But, it, but as I say, for the four Tuesdays before that, each of those evenings, much less obviously. Quite often that happens away from the public gaze, whereas the actual main days of the holiday are much more public celebrations. Yeah, it's fascinating. You've always got to dig down a little bit beneath the surface, which is exactly what you've done, which is why that's such great insight into the country. And I want to go on a little kind of tour, basically. I, I think a lot of people won't be familiar with the different aspects of Azerbaijan. And as you've said, it's very varied. But let's start in the capital, Baku. For people that don't know, could you, you know, we're coming into that city for the first time. Uh, what's that like? Can you paint a picture of that for us? A little bit of history. Baku, up until World War One, was the biggest oil producer, I think, in the world. It was massively wealthy. So you've got some of the beautiful architecture from around 1905 to 1915. Now, that forms a ring around a UNESCO heritage site, which is a complete walled inner city with tiny little alleyways. That went from being a, a sweet little place that you could see in a, an hour or two to being a, a an absolute delight because it's now full of little museums, masses of, of cafes and little restaurants, and you can stay in small homestays. And you can stay in, in, in some of the sort of traditional style buildings right in the old city, as I did last year for about you know, 25 pounds a night in a really quite a pleasant place. And it's quite a discovery. You can't quite believe. But then you beyond that, you've got the skyscrapers and the really modern city, which Again, when I first went, half the, th the fun of going to Baku was, was, was the sort of rather tumble-down feel. Now, it's a, there's, a, there's a sort of a, an area which is almost like Dubai. So up on one of the hills above the city centre, so you've got, you've got this kind of extraordinary modern architecture. At the other end of the bay is another 35-story-ish skyscraper, which is in the shape of a crescent moon on its tips, which, again, you need to see it to believe it. It's quite an extraordinary creation. Then, so you're asking, if you've flown into Baku, the actual airport is really like a work of art inside. You come out of the airport, and the airport bus will take you down what's an ever more spectacular avenue or several kilometres long of, of skyscrapers in, in some quite interesting shapes. Another thing about Baku is... There's some quite sort of uh, glitzy um, nightlife. Um, there's some really good pubs. And the, increasingly, there's some really nice wine bars. Azerbaijan has put an enormous investment into the wine industry. And you, there are some, they're getting there. So there are some local wine bars that are really, you know, pretty good. And talk to me about the food too, because it just sounds lovely kind of going into the old city and wandering around and checking out the architecture and the cobbled streets and soaking it all up and popping into little museums. But what are the local food? Like, what are some of the dishes we should try? The Azerbaijani food, when, when I first went, the only restaurants that really anyone cared about were places where you had shashlik, as, as they call it in Russian, but still use uh, the word they tend to use, which is basically shish kebab, uh, a kind of skewered meat. They have the, the, a wonderful variety of, of skewered meats, um, but they also have a lot of 
there's a, a great deal of, of really, really good fruit and vegetables. The, 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 it, it, somehow the taste of a tomato in Azerbaijan and, and indeed some of those other countries, it's, it's, it's so tasty. The, the, just, there's so much flavor in a tomato that you just don't get with a sort of supermarket one here. And the same really goes for, for the lamb. So the meat, it, quite often the cuisine, I, it's not quite as, um, it doesn't use garlic and spices in the way that uh, the Georgian food does. So, you know, whereas in Georgia, you'll get a lot of the, like the aubergine roulades and the, and, and the satsivi and the, the, the sort of a lot more garlic. Here, it tends to be the, the pure flavors of really good vegetables, a lot of the cilantro, herb, salads, and then put with the taste of, of lamb. I mean, I, I don't know if you're vegetarian, but it's not necessarily the ideal place to be vegetarian because because the the, the taste of the lamb is it, you can almost taste the flowers that the the the, the, the sheep were, were feasting on in the in the meadows. Interestingly, in Azerbaijan, they still have semi-nomadic shepherds who walk their sheep from the upland pastures down to the lowland pastures when the season changes. So the you know the, the sheep actually. They have a lot more flavour, but they're not all necessarily quite as tender, shall we say? So if you're if you're having mutton, but it's a there's lots of flavour there. A lot of soups. Um, a thing that you'll find very much is a thing that the, again the Russians call it plov, the locals call it ash, but still often the Russian words are still used in Azerbaijan, and that's a kind of a form of of rice in various different guises. And what makes the Azerbaijani one particularly interesting is they especially if you get the, the most expensive one, it has a crust around it. You've got fruit, nuts, uh, sort of things like apricots and satsumas. And so, uh, this idea of mixing a little bit of fruit in with the savoury is also quite a common thing there. But of course, in Baku, you've also got food from, from everywhere else as well, but, which you won't find. When you, when, you, when you go out of Baku, you're largely going to find Azerbaijani food or Turkish food or pizza. <laughs> pizza goes everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a few highlights, like, right? There's a few kind of must-see historical sites within the capital as well, isn't there? Baku actually has only been a really significant city since in the last 150 years or so. Before that, a town called Shamakha was was a lot more important. But it had a couple of periods of historical importance in the 12th and 14th, 15th centuries. And during that time, the local kings did build palaces there. And that's when the, you got these wall, this walled old city. And so one of those palace complexes is fairly complete. And again, that's part of the UNESCO heritage site. So that's an interesting place. And again, there's some, I won't spoil it for people. There's a, but look down little holes when you're there because there's quirky little things happening, you know, little uh, video effects and things. It's, it's nicely done. Speaking of little things, I, as I was kind of looking into this a little bit, prepping for the interview, I saw that there is a museum of miniature books, which I, I love that as a concept anyway for a museum. I love books and I, I never really thought of uh, miniature books being a thing. Apparently one is two millimeters by two millimeters. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know what story is written in there. Did you manage to get to see that? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's free as well. So I, I can't remember exactly, but I believe that the the woman who founded it was the the wife of, of of a famous artist. I forget the details, but so so I think she was, uh, you know, it was a very honoured family, and and so she's 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 created this incredible collection. But it really is quite fun. You know, you've got little little magnifying glasses so that you can see what you're looking at. 
Yeah, there's quite a collection there. But as I say, there's quite there's lots of quirky little things to to discover. There's also some the, in the sort of area where the pubs are ends, but where there's still the older buildings. There's a there's a small area of slightly alternative bars and tea houses and clubs and things where the the local youth hang out and and, and created a a sort of mildly alternative place. It's not perhaps quite Brighton or Lewis or. Uh, but it, but they're, they're really it's a great sort of place to explore. And there's, um, for example, there's a bar called Old School where it's they, they've got old school desks, quite literally. They barely have a sign. You have to sort of go up some little dark alley. There's there's a an alternative theatre in one of those streets. I think they've actually moved recently, but it's in a derelict building, and you you sort of have to you kind of have to know it's there. It's not you're not going to just stumble across it. Um, the place I went last time. I was taking some friends there, and I know it's there, but you have to go through a, a dark, through a dark doorway, up an unmarked stair, and then back in and around, and come out through onto a uh, onto a balcony where you go. Oh, they're like, oh, hello, welcome, yeah, and and it's 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 dead cheap as well. It's a little pound a pint kind of place, but. Uh-oh. <laughs> enjoy our podcast series and the stories that we bring to you then do remember to head over to wanderlustmagazine.com for heaps more travel inspiration and of course if you don't already then do make sure you subscribe to our print magazine we offer our members six beautiful issues a year each packed with awe inspiring stories about off the beaten track destinations and authentic travel experiences and you can become a club member today for just £35 a year. That's about 50 bucks. Not only will this get you the print issue, but exclusive competitions, events, offers, and so much more. So head to shop.wanderlust.co.uk now to subscribe, or head to wanderlustmagazine.com and hit the subscribe button. So we spent a couple of days in Baku. Where would we go next? What do you recommend to go next following that? Well, assuming that you don't have too much time, and depending a little bit on the uh, season, uh, probably you're going to choose one or both of Khinalik up in the north, which which is about three hours drive up the Caspian coast and then into the high mountains, or the town of Sheki also written shaki or written all kinds of different ways because the 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 way it's written in azerbaijani has a backwards e letter which is hard to transliterate that's a little bit further three about four hours drive and unfortunately the train isn't working at the moment but in it until very recently the best way to go there was to take the night train um, from baku you got on at about 10 at night and you would wake up six, seven in the morning, uh, very close to Shecky. <clears throat> sadly, as I say, uh, since COVID, that train hasn't been running. Hopefully it will be reinstated because it's a lovely way to get there. But so I'll take them in turns. Let's start with Shecky since we're starting with that. Shecky is also a good way if you're going to and from Georgia because it's the, the scenic route to Georgia follows the the, the foothills of the, the high Caucasus and Sheki is the highlight, but by no means the only place to see along that route. But Sheki, Sheki, you've got it's easier to sell than the rest because it's got some particularly outstanding 
sites, noted, notably the Khan's Palace, which is covered in this colourful in colourful murals. It's got Shebeka windows, which are strain the light into sort of multiple colours inside. And it's set in this walled fortress area, backed by sort of pillows of, of forested hills, which are then great places to go for walks. So it's a it has a sort of um, a very satisfying core of old buildings, tiled roofs, and also lots now, I mean, the last two or three years, there's now lots of little uh, boutique hotels. Or if you're prepared to rough it a little bit, but want real history, one of the most incredible caravanserais that you've ever seen, relatively young by caravanserai standards, sort of 18th, late 18th century, but it's, it's complete. You've got you stay in one of the little cells that a tra- tradesman might have done two or three hundred years ago, and then it's built around a central courtyard. It's on two levels. It, it just feels like you're you're going back in time. It's, it's, but <laughs> so does the plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> no, that does sound amazing. And for people that aren't familiar what uh, the caravanserai is, could you explain what that is? Well, a caravan used to be not the sort of thing you'd drag behind a Land Rover. It used to be a, a group of camels that would cross the deserts and a caravanserai. Uh, serai basically is a Turkic word meaning palace. So it was a palace for the camel trade. But it, by palace in this case, they mean just a large building. And essentially, these things were the medieval version of a travel lodge or a sort of <laughs> a motel. You know, you park your animals in underneath or possibly in, in it, for safety in the central courtyard and then you sleep above it. That was the sort of basic principle. Also, Sheki, I mean, you talk about the Silk Road route, Sheki actually became a centre for silk production, but it really didn't do that until the later 18th century. That's why these great big caravanserais appeared, because there, there were a lot of, was a lot of pre-railway travel, which requires either horses or pack animals or, or camels to take the, she- the, the, the silk from Sheki to other places. So it was part of a much later silk road than the one we tend to think of. Yeah, fascinating. It does sound amazing. But one place I do want to ask about as well, this was the alternative you mentioned, is going up into the mountains, up into the high Caucasus, because I love the mountains. I love hiking. And it's somewhere I've always wanted to go because they are absolutely spectacular, aren't they? Yeah, that's so true. So the village of Khinalik, it's special because it's the highest constantly uh, inhabited village by some definitions in Europe. There, 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 there's many ways we could discuss that, but it's it's one of the highest villages in this part of the world, certainly. One of the things that, apart from just the, the sheer beauty of it, that I love about the place is that they've had enough tourism that local people do do homestays. So you can stay in a fairly typical local home and if you stay there overnight, because there's quite a lot of day trippers come up from from the plains and, and from Baku even nowadays, now that the road's good. But what's still lovely is if you stay overnight, especially during the, the period when the sheep are grazing on the high mountain pastures, they, they're kind of like homing sheep. So one or two of the shepherds will bring back 
a vast number of sheep and then when they when they get near to the center of the village you watch them and they they actually don't really need to be told where to go and they all so you can see them go oh night then mate see you in the morning <laughs> bar 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 off they go and 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 i've watched them with with utter astonishment now, in terms of the hiking one of the most fun hikes on the way as you come up to Khanalik, again one of the reasons Khanalik is is such a honeypot is not just the village itself the road that takes you up there is is really quite spectacular so you start almost below sea level in the town of kuba which is interesting in itself then it comes across these beautiful sort of bucolic patchworks of of farmlands and towards the, the mountain then you realize that the road's going to go through a canyon in my book, I named this uh, Cloud Catch Canyon because it, quite literally, you, you tend to have clouds just hanging there and you come out into these beautiful pastures. Well, pastures, not quite. It's sort of grasslands, this deep grassland bowl. There's a way you can go descend to the canyon base and then back up the other side. And that allows you to go from the village of Jek, which is the village before Kinalik, to the village of Greece, which is another village with its own... And what's particularly fun about that trek, it's not too arduous, it's incredibly spectacular, but when you get to the bottom, you've got to get across the river. And there you have a thing like a dial a horse. So the, you, last time I was there, we were with a guide and they said, well, there might be a bridge there, there might not. And we got there, no, no bridge. Hang on, I'll just call me mate. And so <laughs> down comes a couple of horses from Greece Village and, and takes and, and the and the water was up, up to the up above above the stirrups on the horse. <laughs> Moving very fast. But you know, it, so that that was a hell of an experience. But so so you know, you you got Fun, fun stuff like that. The next set of valleys comes up instead of from Guba, which is where, where you get to Khinalik, you go up from Gusar, and there there's a village called Laza. It's ringed with long ribbons of waterfall pouring off great crags. The village is tiny and brilliant emerald green when you if you go in the spring. But on top of it, if you want... Comfort, just five kilometers back, is Azerbaijan's biggest ski resort. So so you can you can combine the two. You can stay in a lovely five-star hotel like the Peak Palace, which is a, has a real sort of Cruella de Vil sense of uh, inc- like over-the-top Tim Burton-esque style. Um, and then you can just go like you can just go over the lip of the valley and you're into this beautiful vi- village. Or you can just take the cable car up and then walk on those high mountaintops. So, you know, you, you, you're kind of spoilt for choice, really, there. Ski resort? That's a, I didn't I didn't realise you could ski in Azerbaijan. No, there's three ski resorts, yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Okay, so you've taken us to the city, to the mountains, to the Silk Road, skiing. And in some ways, this next question isn't really fair because Azerbaijan as a whole is the road less travelled. But within the country itself, where are some of the secrets? Where are some of the places off the beaten track that you would take us? It's just starting to change, but I mentioned very briefly the the exclave of Nakhchivan. An exclave, if people don't know that, is a, a, a sort of detached piece of territory. So it belongs to Azerbaijan, 
but you can't just drive there from the rest of Azerbaijan without crossing the border into Iran or into uh, Armenia. And since the Armenian border is closed, you would have to go via Iran. And and since getting an Iranian visa is a bit of a, a faff these days, you, you essentially need to fly. The, the flights are extremely reasonable. I think it's about Fifty pounds, forty pounds to go there, so it's not expensive. And there's five or six flights a day because people do it all the time. The one of many highlights is a place which has been dubbed the Machu Picchu of, of Eurasia. It's a place called Alinja Castle, and there's not really a castle there. It's just a series of um, uh, wall wall stubs about a metre high, but marking out the shape of a, of a former palace-type complex. What's so cool is that you, you have to climb nearly 1,500 steps up the side of a crag to get to it. And when you get up there, you have this absolutely extraordinary view across the river into Iran of all the Iranian mountains of a place called Snake Mountain, Ilandakh, which is like this gigantic tooth rising out of the plains in Nachivan below. And there's so much you can see in a day or two in Nakhchivan. Yeah, it, it, it's quite something. You paint such a beautiful picture as well, and it seems like such a varied country and there's so much to dive into. If you had, let's say, two weeks, what would your itinerary be? What would you suggest? One of the things like I often recommend to people is that if you're going that far... I would often suggest that people combine Azerbaijan with Georgia because Georgia also is utterly marvellous. As I mentioned, when you get to Sheki, um, it's not that far to continue. And, and there's, a, there's a town called Zakatala, which is an hour or two from Sheki. That's worth a stop. Very, very beautiful mountain walks there. Then you can easily nip across into Georgia um, you, you then get into the Georgian wine in, in area in, in, in Telavi, and, and the whole of that Kaheti wine district is lovely. And then you get to Tbilisi. So it makes a logical progression to do it as a combined trip. So I would probably, if you've got two weeks for the whole of the area, I'd probably have a week in Azerbaijan, a week in Georgia. And the places I've mentioned, I would start, have two or three days, days in Baku, couple of days up in, in the mountains, either in Laza and the ski resort or in, in um, and and the areas there. Then then work your way across the country going, and, and, and Sheki is the uh, probably the highlight of that, but, but by no means the only place. You've got Gabale, you've got Lahij, which is an, an area, uh, a side valley with this, this village full of coppersmiths, Again, there's some lovely little homestays there. It's a quite idyllic little place. A village called Bascal has just been sort of um, renovated. Uh, that's a silk dyeing village, but it's a very nice place. Again, there's some lovely things to see there. There's a whole series of things you can see as you dot your way along that route. So that, you know, that would easily be your first week and then spend another week in Georgia. If you're having a second week in Azerbaijan, we haven't even touched on a whole the whole south of the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, go on then. Um, and, but I totally understand that that it's that's more a sort of place that you go as a second trip, like you're saying, like Nakhchivan, maybe for your second trip. And, and then there's the far south where you've got some incredible walks in the Hirkan National Park. So these incredible 
woodlands where this village there's there's a couple of hamlets where they're not on a map they have no roads and you can hike to them through through these forests that are so mossy it feels like you're in sort of a scene from Tolkien Mark, it's been so wonderful to talk to you. You're obviously, you know, a wealth of knowledge. You're an expert about this this region, but it's so amazing to hear your your passion for the country too, and your love for the country, and that really comes across in in the way you describe it and and all the uh, the wonderful things you've shared with us today. So so thank you so much. Where can people connect with you if they want to pester you for more information about Azerbaijan? I'm an old man. As I say, I wrote the first book before there was any internet. And I, I, I'm not a big one for social media, frankly. So basically, I would just tell people, go, discover. I mean, one of the things these days is, whereas my job in the past was to find information when there was very little, now it's a matter of sifting it. And, and I think the main thing people need to know is, A, don't be worried it's an incredibly safe, friendly, hospitable country. It's incredibly reasonable value. It's sort of in that perfect sweet spot in terms of tourism in that um, the country wants tourists. They're really encouraging tourists. And I absolutely recommend everyone who's interested in going out to Azerbaijan or anywhere in the region that you've written about to go and search up your name, Mark Elliott, and look out for some of those guidebooks and uh, other books you've written. They are fantastically done. You can, of course, also go to wanderlustmagazine.com for lots more information, uh, photographs and more about Azerbaijan. Lots of awesome stuff up there. So... Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Mark. It's been so awesome to talk with you. And I hope we can have you back on. There's so much of that part of the world yet to be discovered. My pleasure. Nice talking with you. Well, that is all we have time for today, unfortunately. But before you dash off, make sure you hit that subscribe and like button. And that may be all we have time for today, but we do have plenty more incredible episodes coming up. So do make sure you keep an eye out for those. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we will see you next time. Wanderlust Off The Page was presented by Lynn Hughes and Rosie Fitzgerald. The interviewer was Aaron Miller and the show was produced by Armchair Productions, the audio experts for the travel industry. <laughs>